Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Welcome and thank you for joining us at today's events hosted by the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Today is Friday, February 9, and the panel before you is assembled to discuss Israel's security challenges, most specifically the looming threat Israel faces to its north. I'm Elizabeth Robbins, FDD's Vice President of Communications. We're pleased to have you here, some in person, some toning in live for this important conversation. The big question I'm seeing here is this. Will Israel soon fight a two-front war, the ongoing one to defeat Hamas in Gaza, and then a second one to defeat Hezbollah in Lebanon? Which leads to more questions, such as the role of UNIFIL, the United Nations Interim Force in Lebanon, established in 1978. Isn't UNIFIL supposed to ensure the peace and security of the Israel-Lebanon border, and also to assist the Lebanese government maintain effective authority in southern Lebanon? Another question about UN Resolution 1701, passed in 2006 to end the Israel-Hezbollah war and expand UNIFIL's mandate. How come UNIFIL isn't effectively supporting the Lebanese armed forces between the Blue Line and Jordan's Latani River to remove the Hezbollah threat? I'm re reminded of recent trips to Israel's northern border where I saw Hezbollah flags clearly displayed in Lebanon with Hezbollah operatives in full view studying us through their binoculars. My last question. With up to 100,000 Israelis displaced from their homes in northern Israel, how long can Israel withstand this threat before taking decisive action? I'm now pleased to introduce our panel to answer all these questions. Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus served 24 years in the Israel Defense Forces as a combat commander in both Lebanon and the Gaza Strip, as a diplomat and as an IDF international spokesperson in the wake of Hamas's October 7 attacks. He recently retired from the reserves and is a member of the Israel Defense and Security Forum, as well as a senior fellow here at FDD. Eyal Hulada is a senior international fellow at FDD and the first foreign visiting fellow at FDD headquarters. Formerly, Eyal served as Israel's national security advisor and head of Israel's National Security Council, serving under Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and Prime Minister Yair Lapid. He has served more than 20 years in Israeli national security roles. And Enya Kravin, the senior director of FDD's Israel program and national security network. She joined FDD after nearly seven years at the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, where she helped strengthen the U.S.-Israel relationship through education and advocacy. Moderating today's discussion is Anna Schechter, senior producer in the NBC News Investigations Unit, since the outbreak of the war in Israel, she has actively reported developments and updates from the region. Lastly, before we dive into our discussion, a few words about FDD. For more than 20 years, FDD has operated as a fiercely independent, nonpartisan research institute exclusively focused on national security and foreign policy. As a point of pride and principle, we do not accept foreign government funding. For more on our work, please visit our website, fdd.org, and follow us on Twitter, at FDD. That's enough for me. Anna, over to you. Thanks so much. Um, it's great to be here with you all. And this is a fascinating time right now. Um, I was just in Israel and uh, did multiple interviews 
um, with current and former Israeli officials about uh, the northern border. So Eyal, I want to start with you. Can you set the scene for us? What is the threat on Israel's northern border and what is most concerning to you right now? Thank you, Anna, and uh, good to have you here uh, with us uh, on the stage. Um, I think in order to understand the current situation in the north, we need to uh, just remind ourselves this is uh, 125 days since October 7th, since the, the uh, horrendous attack by Hamas uh, on our southern uh, communities and towns um, in, in, in a very devastating uh, day in that um, uh, Saturday of, of October 7th. Um, and over more than four months now of, of the most intense war Israel has uh, engaged in in, in, uh, in any time in recent history, actually. Uh, Israel mobilized uh, 250,000 reservists. Uh, that's more soldiers that participated in the Yom Kippur War 50 years ago. This is how significant this is. And I start with this before I talk about the North because everything that happens now in the North is in the shadow of what's happening in the south. Israel is, is uh, engaged in a, um, in a in a in intensified conflict with Hezbollah. This is not a full-fledged war. We don't call it a war. Um, I think the uh, the overall uh, understanding for me for sure, but I think that uh, of the war cabinet is that we also do not want to engage in a full-fledged war with Hezbollah at the moment uh, uh, while we're waging um, uh, this wide war in Gaza, but nonetheless, about 180 uh, Hezbollah terrorists have been killed over the last little bit less than four months because the conflict in the north did not start immediately. Um, we haven't had this amount of conflict in many, many years. Frankly, since the Second Lebanese War back in 2006, Beth uh, um, mentioned this before, and of course we'll talk about, about the prospect. This is what's happening at the moment. This is, this is a low-intensity war, but a war nonetheless with Hezbollah, of which we haven't had in almost 20 years. Um, the, the significance of that, of course, is that this could have become a war. Uh, Hezbollah could have taken the opportunity to join uh, Hamas, if not on the 7th of October, on the 8th of October, um, and they didn't. They chose not to. Israel could have either preempted or used this kind of escalation to move ahead into a more wide war with uh, Hezbollah and Israel chose not to. So we're kind of in a balanced situation where what we're seeing is, is, is intensified, but this is not escalating a lot, and of course many angles to it. What are the Iran's interests? What is Hezbollah's interest? What do the Lebanese want? What do the Americans want? Uh, and of course right. what Israel wants. But I, and I want to just jump in, in terms of Isra you're saying Israel doesn't want um, a more full-fledged war. Are you concerned about um, irresponsible people, maybe in government or in the military, that are itching for more conflict. Is that concerning to you? Because that would have major implications for the for the wider region and and for the U.S. I think what's what's important to to realize in this regard is that this is actually uh, maybe the main reason why the war cabinet that we have now in Israel was uh, created. Uh, the fact that uh, two former uh, chief of IDF. Uh, commanders, uh, Benny Gantz and Gadi Azenkot, joined the war cabinet was actually in the wake of uh, a decision to be made whether or not to preempt in, in Lebanon. And the reason that they decided to come in out of a of, uh, sincere uh, sense of, of, uh, of responsibility and also the ability to exert authority on 
uh, the entire security apparatus uh, uh, put them in. I think the composition of the war cabinet of Israel is very sound and balanced and very responsible. Um, and I have to say, you know, I served as national security advisor uh, for uh, the opposition of this, uh, of this government. I feel much better when I know that the key decision-making that has to do with the war, both in Lebanon but also in Gaza, are in the hands of uh, experienced people uh, whom I think the vast majority of the Israelis trust. Um, and I think that's important. I think that's important to understand to the audience, to everybody, that the, the critical decisions made in Israel right now are, are made by uh, serious people, responsible people, experienced people who know exactly uh, what are the risks that we need to, uh, to evade. It doesn't mean it cannot deteriorate. It can, not just because of wrong Israeli decisions. It can escalate because, uh, you know, a rocket falls in the wrong place, too many civilians on our side uh, or on the other side. Uh, we've seen war start uh, uh, for far less than what happened so far, but I think that uh, fair to say that the responsibility governed at the moment. And Biden just yesterday said that uh, Israel's response in Gaza was over the top. Um, and I'm just curious, um, you know, given that so much of the population had moved south, so many people in Rafah, um, today Netanyahu <clears throat> perhaps belatedly uh, said that he'd ordered some kind of investigation of how to move the population out of Rafah before this onslaught when you have so many civilians down there. What's your take and how do you feel um, Israel has done on that front? So I think um, um, we're in a situation that is very, uh, uh, I think, de devastating when you look at it from, from an Israeli perspective. Um, and, and, you know, I will very frankly say, I think Israel is, is, is losing on the narrative uh, f front of the war. We started in the worst day uh, the Jewish people has experienced since the Holocaust um, with, with an amount of brutality that I think everyone who have, I haven't watched the 45 minute video that you created because I couldn't. Well, not you, but the IDF while you were there and did a good job, by the way. Um, but it, I mean, the, the level of atrocity that they were experienced are, are beyond imagination of anybody. The fact that four months later, uh, uh, a lot of the criticism is, is faced on in Israel where Hamas is, you know, kind of, of shadowing in, in, in the suffering of Palestinians, which is genuine and which I'm very empathic to on a personal level. And I think that also uh, um, as a former official, high official of, of, of Israeli establishment. This is a, this is a disastrous situation. 2.2 right? million Gazans. Israel is not at war with Gaza. Israel is at war with Hamas. Hamas, which have repeatedly claimed that they bear no responsibility for the Gazans, it's for others to take care of them. The UN should take care of them. Who's the UN? UNRWA, who several of them participated in, in the atrocities of October 7. It's, everything is, is really messed up. However, and I'm also critical on my current government on this, Israel has not played well. Uh, uh, the entire scenario coming this way, we're not prepared for the day after. Things that I and others have been talking about for, for months now, uh, we cannot move around the civilians from part to part without a plan, without the, uh, providing them the bare humanitarian necessities. We're Israel. This is who we are. These are our values. This is how we live our lives. This is how we fight our wars. And we need to be cognizant of that, not just because of the pressure for, that comes from external. This is how we should do this. So I'm happy that Netanyahu said what he said. I hope that behind it is a, a, a good and feasible plan that can actually do things reasonable about this. Uh, we cannot just wait to see what will happen in the north of Gaza when the IDF 
withdraws uh, uh, from it. Uh, so if you ask when I'm concerned, yes, of course I'm concerned. Because I think that the way that this plays out, not only militarily, uh, but also humanitarianly and diplomatically, will actually um, uh, put the, the direction to how we can move out from this situation so that we actually do get more stability on the long run and not just on the immediate uh, uh, success of military, which is, I think, uh, uh, beyond uh, what I expected before. Before we go to Jonathan, I want to ask you about Iran. Uh, you have more than two decades of experience uh, thinking about Iran, uh, dealing with Iranian threats to Israel uh, via proxies primarily. Um, where do you think things stand in terms of what Iran wants in the region? Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? Um, I think what's uh, extremely frustrating for me personally is that when I look at 2023, uh, this is probably one of the best years Iran had since the revolution. And it's frightening and frustrating because 2022 was actually one of the worst. Uh, I, I know because I was national security advisor working with the Americans to put uh, a, a pressure and to carb Iranian ambitions and we didn't achieve everything we wanted, but I think we achieved uh, quite a lot. And, and you look at 2023, it starts with a deal that provides Iran with about $16 billion for hostages that I think the Americans should have brought back. I'm all for returning hostages. Like ours, I think it was important to bring Americans back. Um, but overall, Iran is gaining uh, uh, a normalized uh, position again. And people do not pay attention to their strategic collaboration with the Russians and how that affects the war in Europe, to their strategic collaboration with the Chinese, which allows them to export more than 2.5 billion barrels a day. And Iran is, is gradually uh, uh, going to a better place. This isn't good for the world, not just for Israel. When the outcome is what they do with the Houthis on the Red Sea to affect directly global trade in ways that we haven't seen in, in, in decades in, in the region, and I don't think we've seen this anywhere else in the world, they use Israel as an excuse, but this is not about us. This is about uh, uh, hampering the ability of, of goods uh, to travel through the Suez Canal. It implicates the, the Egyptians, and it has an effect on, on all of the Gulf countries, and of course on Europe as a, as, a, uh, as a prime to that. And the fact that Iran can continue this feeling that they can actually get, a, get away with all of that. They can get away with uh, funding of Hamas for um, uh, years and for training them for this operation for many months and to get away with it. And uh, uh, to do what they're doing in the Red Sea and to, to get away with it. Actually to, to be directly implicated with killing three American servicemen. And we'll have to see how the American response continues on this. But if this ends with Iran feeling that they uh, have a better hand on this, this has dire consequences, I think, for the entire region, and I'm worried about it. So you bring up the Houthis. I'm glad you did. Inya, I would love for you to talk about the U.S. response um, and if you can give us your take on how, how the U.S. grades in terms of their response. Um, it, I think we were all waiting for a few days, what would happen, and then boom, last Friday. Can you paint us a picture of what happened there and uh, you know, how the U.S. can step in here, um, in your view? Sure, so um, thank you, first of all. Um, you know, I think that what Israel is looking for and what all of our allies in the region and the world are looking for right now is for America to act like a superpower. So. First and foremost, I mean, there's many tactical things that, that we can do, but more than anything, they're looking for American strength. 
and that is what is lacking, and I think that's what's been lacking um, in 2023. Um, and perhaps we got a better, saw a little bit more of it previous. Um, I mean, tactically, there, there are some things that Congress can do. There's some things, some things that the administration can do. I mean, if you're looking at a way to sort of bring more calm to the Israeli, um, to the, what's going on between Israel and Gaza, I mean, the first thing that I would do would be to defund UNRWA. I mean, that's a really simple one. Congress can do it. You could do it via an executive order. There's no doubt that UNRWA contributed a lot of to the, to the culture of hate and dehumanization that we saw um, sort of boil over on October 7th. That was a thing that had been going on and breeding for years. So I think that that would be, that would be a pretty easy uh, fix to try and just channel that, those funds and those efforts into something that could actually bring about a real change in, um, in the way that, that Palestinians who are receiving this education can, can relate better towards, towards their neighbor. So that would be number one. There are other things that we can do. We can, you know, obviously turn the screws on Iran. I think a full snapback of the sanctions would be really great. I think trying to stop and curb some of the funding to these bad actors that have um, unleashed this chaos in the Middle East would all be really good moves and positive and have, um, have an effect. And, and finally, I think that the U.S. should be driving really hard towards normalization with Saudi Arabia. I think that is a bright spot, and it is something that feels that it is almost within reach. I hope we'll talk about it a little bit later with this panel, but I think that that is, um, you know, the Biden administration is working hard at that. Blinken's been traveling to the region. I know that's something they're wanting to do. I don't know if they're going about it correctly, um, and that, you know, we could talk further about that, but I think it's another, it's another uh, initiative that the U.S. could lead that could have real positive effect on the region. It is an interesting time with um, that bigger, broader deal in the background. And there are a lot of different groups um, working to push this forward. And there's some dissent and disagreement between the Israelis and the Americans as to how to come about the deal. Do, do any of you want to talk about that, weigh in on that? Yeah, or Jonathan? I think, uh, first of all, shalom to everyone and to those watching far away, wherever they are. Um, I think to put it in, in, in a shorter soundbite would be that Iran has set the boundaries for uh, the situation in the Middle East where they use proxies in order to attack Israel. They've used proxies in order to attack America or American assets and forces and sadly uh, military personnel. And Israel, and I think the U.S. as well, but I can speak about Israel, is more or less playing along the lines that Iran has set forward, Spe or attacking or retaliating towards the proxies and not towards the source of um, instability in the Middle East, terrorism, and of course, uh, on its way to becoming a nuclear power. Um, and I think that's regrettable because it allows, and I very much agree with Yal's comment about Iran having a wonderful year. There's a sideshow going on in Gaza which is sucking out of the, all the oxygen of the conversation in the Middle East. And it's about a smaller issue. And the big issue, the nuclear military aspirations of Iran, is left untouched, unspoken about. Nobody's discussing centrifuges or an enrichment and the militarization program, weaponization, and missiles. Because we're discussing Rafah and civilians in Khan Yunus and Israeli cabinet and what Ben Gvir said or didn't say. But that's the sideshow, and we are still very much uh, operating according to the boundaries that Iran has set forward. I think that's very unfortunate. 
uh, not very strategically clever. Uh, and I hope that will change. Well, uh, yeah, I understand. It is, it's a huge story. I mean, we are still um, really focused on telling the story of the Israel-Hamas war because it's four months in, but it, it continues. And so I think we can't um, look away from that. Um, but Iranian um, efforts for nuclear proliferation down the road um, is going to pose a bigger threat to the U.S. So you just left as IDF spokesperson. In terms of how Israel is telling this story of Israel, this is something um, that Netanyahu, over the last more than decade, has really focused on. But how do you think Israel is doing? Can you give Israel a grade for how they're telling the story of Iran? Of Iran or the, or the war? Well, both. So, first of all, reality on the ground, I think, um, isn't playing along with what many people had hoped uh, to see the IDF not succeed in defeating Hamas. And uh, someday in the future, we'll take all of the op-eds and the interviews given by very serious-looking uh, generals and sounding generals who explained in unequivocal terms that the IDF would be sucked into Gaza, it would be a horrible quagmire, and Israel wouldn't be able to defeat such a powerful and well-entrenched enemy like Hamas. Uh, we're, bless you, we're four months in, and uh, the IDF is on its way to militarily, and I agree again with the AL, the whole strategic part that still uh, needs to be defined and clearly uh, directed towards the IDF, but militarily speaking, the IDF is defeating Hamas. Wherever it goes, uh, Hamas folds, and the amount of combat casualties, the amount of dead military uh, enemy combatants, wounded, their personnel, their infrastructure, their weapons, their logistics, their funding, all of that is at the high rate of attrition. So there's reality on the ground, which I think is going uh, quite well, considered the type of, considering the type of challenge that Israel is facing. Uh, telling the story, um, I think we should have, in the beginning, had a bigger uh, leadership and initiative regarding civilians and regarding how to deal with would, what would eventually become, and now is, the biggest topic that, are, that Israeli enemies are using against Israel to undermine its legitimacy. I think early on, Israel should have been very clear about who is helping, and who isn't helping in alleviating civilian suffering in Gaza, those who weren't helping from the beginning were UNRWA. And it took Israel, I think, two and a half, three months too long to be out and take the initiative and say that we are trying. We're trying to evacuate civilians here. We want them out of harm's way. And we have asked UNRWA and the other UN institutions in Gaza for their help. We have suggested to have a humanitarian zone in the northwestern part of Khan Yunus in southern Gaza, but that has been refused and we are not getting any cooperation on the ground. Couldn't they have set that up where they would arrange for a civilian um, refugee area in the north once people, they moved everybody south to then bring those people back up north and, and create a safer space for people to move to the north when they're moving now south um, operationally to Rafa? Yeah, I, I don't think that's tactically necessary, and I don't think it's logistically feasible. Uh, the only area 
in Gaza where Hamas doesn't have underground infrastructure and the, and the area isn't riddled with Hamas rockets and tunnels and infrastructure is that area that Israel proposed to have a makeshift uh, temporary humanitarian zone, the Muasi area. Uh, the reason being that Hamas doesn't have assets there, so Israel doesn't have a need of attacking and dismantling what whatever. What happened there? Why didn't, why didn't they create something? In my mind, simple directive from Hamas to UNRWA, do not move people. We want the civilians in the combat areas and we need them there because as long as they are there, they'll get hurt and that will be the biggest and most important sword that Hamas and enemies of Israel will use in order to undermine Israel's legitimacy to fight and defeat Hamas. As long as civilians are killed or wounded, then that is the most important thing, the, the asset, the international asset that Hamas uses. And sadly, UNRWA played along with that and the reality that we see now in Rafah and that we will encounter in a matter of days or weeks in, uh, sorry, Khan Yunis, and that we will encounter in a matter of days and weeks in Rafah is a result of that decision which was made by UNRWA a week and a half after October the 7th. Israel asked, Israel took the sincere steps except for communicating it well enough and we're facing, and Palestinians on the ground, they're facing it. Now, I think that Israel should have done a better job at taking the initiative and pushing through, despite the fact that we, Israel wasn't getting any cooperation with UN institutions, and we should have led from a communications point of view and communicated that better. But it again connects with what Yael spoke about, having the overarching strategy. I think cabinet defined two clear, Israeli cabinet defined two clear goals, dismantle Hamas's military capabilities and their administrative governing capabilities. That's clear enough, and that's what the IDF started doing. But the other components, I think, were not given the proper attention, and that is where Israel is now, facing what will be, I think, a very long battle of justifying its actions, which I think are very justifiable, but justifying its actions and explaining uh, uh, what needs to be done, and then finding actual humanitarian solutions for a very uh, acute and existing problem uh, of civilians that are stuck in the wrong place in Khan Yunus and in Rafah who could have been in a properly furnished humanitarian zone in Muasi. Uh, there's been enough time, there sure is enough money and enough trucks have come in to have built a refugee center there. Yeah, but it I was decided not looking to. At it, yeah, people looking at it are criticizing and say like this should have been figured out early on, you know, there been four months, this could have been figured out. And so this move south and this push south um, in an effort to get Sinwar, uh, something should have been figured out. So this massive population would not be in the same place that they're looking for Sinwar. Yeah. Well, first of all, the effort south isn't to get Sinwar. The effort south is to cut off the tunnels that lead weapons from Egypt into Gaza, and it is to defeat Hamas. Without taking that area, militarily, Hamas won't be defeated. Sinwar, wherever he's hiding, Khan Yunus, Rafah, or somewhere else, eventually I think Israeli troops will get to him. So it's not about Sinwar. And the responsibility for this is, I think, shared between Israel and UNRWA. Hamas, again, is exempt from any responsibility, despite that they govern, they attacked, they initiated the war, and uh, basically own the Gaza Strip, yet nobody is voicing any criticism, and it's all about Israel. Uh, I think it's slightly, that's not a, a correct way of looking at it, especially since Israel made sincere efforts early on 
and continued to wait and continued to allow civilians to move. It was three weeks between when Israel asked Palestinians to leave and uh, until Israel started to maneuver on the ground. A lot of time. And then were, there were also humanitarian pauses every day to allow Palestinians in certain neighborhoods to get out of there and find relative security in the south. But the strategic piece of you know, linking those things together, I think, wasn't perhaps strong enough. So I want to go to this idea of this potential wider, broader regional conflict. How worried are you all that we are heading that way? Um, <clears throat> I think at the beginning of the war, uh, there was uh, clearly a uh, huge worry um, that what we've seen is either a, a, an initiation of a, a wider uh, regional uh, war or something that could escalate to that. I think that the American response and any, of course, will, I think your perspective will be important, but from an Israeli standpoint, the fact that the United States of America immediately engaged, President Biden immediately came to Israel, and the, the uh, carrier uh, battle groups uh, deployed to the region, delivering a message to everybody around, uh, don't take advantage of this uh, uh, situation. Um, I think played a, a significant role in, in making sure that everybody is, is cognizant to what could go wrong if this doesn't uh, go the wrong way. I think that uh, Israeli uh, preparations, which were uh, reported uh, quite widely, uh, to preempt against Hezbollah uh, should they uh, engage, uh, I think was also very important for Hezbollah to understand how this can play out. I think in the moment, um, it's very difficult to say what I say because in a week things, of course, can go uh, flip the other way. I think broadly, if I need to look ahead and see what, what uh, are the main things uh, looking ahead, we are potentially uh, um, uh, in a process of returning the hostages back, which could lead to uh, a pause of the war uh, uh, in some way. Uh, of course, Hamas needs to play along because at the moment they demand a complete stop of the entire war with assurances from the West that Israel cannot engage. Israel cannot agree to that. Israel will need to continue to, to push uh, uh, Hamas and, and to chase uh, uh, its, leader, its, its leaders. Otherwise, we can never have a new reality in Gaza. But doesn't mean that there isn't a, a scope of possible agreement on this. There is, is increasing talk about chances of normalization with Saudi Arabia. Right? We remember we were talking about this before the war started. I actually think that derailing that normalization process, uh, even if it wasn't the one of the top reasons for Hamas to engage at the moment, clearly this is one of the benefits uh, uh, that Hamas and Iran have gained uh, uh, from that. And we continue to talk about this because the fundamental interest of the countries in the region for stability, for collaboration with, with Israel, for normalization are intact. Everybody understands who the bad guys are. Everybody understands what the threat from Islamic Brotherhood and, and radical Islam on all of the moderate Sunni countries uh, in the region. This is still the case. So I think that if we're wise with our, our decision makers, and this goes to the decision makers, right? This makes goes to what kind of decisions will Netanyahu make? Fortunately, it's the same Netanyahu that I think could have done a better job in strategizing the entire thing and making sure that we have a better day after situation because we're four months into it. But it doesn't mean that it's over. There are decisions to be made if we're able to reach a hostages deal and with it to create a gradual de-escalation, this could happen. It's my opinion that if, even when this happens and we do get our hostages back, 
is where we need to continue to engage because we need to get rid of Hamas leadership. I think that we are able to square those things together. And I think that the international community and the United States in particular understands that Israeli fundamental needs. So I think there is enough uh, momentum that could continue uh, the process of, uh, of limiting this conflict to what we're having in Gaza and see how this happens. Having said that, in a month from now, Ramadan is coming. And I have to say that I fear what might happen in Ramadan. If uh, Ramadan two years ago, uh, uh, this was uh, uh, how we ended up with the Garden of the Walls. If this uh, uh, war uh, becomes about the narrative of saving uh, uh, Al-Aqsa, as Hamas uh, uh, calls it, we can have a serious uh, uh, escalation that could lead to something bigger. And I think there, there is a limited time window, hopefully, to be able to continue to place this emphasis only on Gaza so that Israel can continue to do what we need without this uh, broadening to a, a regional conflict that could have many uh, bad consequences. I don't share the optimism. Uh, from my perspective, there are a few non-negotiable things in the equation. Uh, about 100,000 Israelis are outside of their homes in, from northern Israel. Uh, and the political pressure inside Israel is mounting for them to be able to go back to their homes. I don't think that any government can negotiate that, uh, negotiate it away. It's been managed so far, but eventually Israelis will have to go back to their homes. Uh, in order for them to do so, Hezbollah needs to voluntarily, or by force, but let's say voluntarily, decide to step five miles back and remain there and say publicly that it will remain there. Um, the problem with that is that it's not a very Middle Eastern thing to do. To step back, give an achievement to your nemesis without having a significant achievement of your own. So far, Hezbollah, their biggest achievement has been that they have forced 100,000 Israelis away from their homes, but they have had more than 200 uh, trained, well-trained, seasoned combatants killed by the IDF. And they've had internally displaced Shiites from the villages along the south move north. And if they do this, if they voluntarily go back, that's a tremendous loss of face and uh, would impact their street cred in Lebanon and the whole jihadi world. Uh, and Hezbollah has already been outdone by Hamas. Hamas out, outdid Hezbollah in the atrocities of October the 7th. Hezbollah used to be at the peak, the forefront of uh, murderous jihadi organizations, and now Hamas uh, is in the prime of that. Not for so long, I don't know how long they will exist, but that is where Hamas positioned itself. Um, and for Hezbollah, I think it's very challenging to do that, to give Israel that, and not have anything to show for it. Um, which leads us to the other option. So far, again, I'm in agreement with Hial, Israel and Hezbollah have been very measured and strategic in how they've been approaching the conflict. Uh, and both sides, Israel perhaps going across a few times and, and killing senior Hezbollah officials, which has been a little bit outside of, of the established playground, but 10 or 20 out of 100 of uh, capabilities deployed. Uh, both sides have been strategic about it, clear about what can be done and what can, cannot be done, not wanting war, both sides. 
the way I read it. But for Israelis to go, to go, go back home, something needs to give. So it either diplomatically, and I don't see enough talk, enough traction, enough activity around it to facilitate it, which leaves the other option. And if you look at Israeli messaging, then they're definitely ratcheting up the messaging, training exercises up north, the 36th division, which is the biggest uh, regular size uh, division, and statements made by the, uh, uh, the general, General Gordon, and many other things, chief of staff, prime minister, uh, minister of defense. There's a whole and obvious uh, uh, shaping campaign that is going on intended to facilitate the first part. Let's have the diplomatic solution because we don't want to go to war. But if we need to, then uh, we, we are ready. Um, is, there, is there a diplomatic solution for that border? And, and, and Inya, I'm curious if the U.S. can help facilitate that. Is there a way to mitigate this brewing conflict? So in order to answer that question, let me, let me go back to one of your earlier questions. Um, you know, as far as grading the Biden administration on how they've done with all this unrest, I would say um, if you look at um, the U.S., the Israeli-Gaza conflict in a silo, I think they've done really well. I think they would get a B plus at least, you know, certainly in the first couple months of the, of the conflict. I mean, sending the carrier strike groups um, to the region, the very clear messaging from, from Biden that there's good and evil. I think all of this was very, um, very positive. I think Israel felt very strongly. I know that anecdotally, IDF soldiers on the ground felt strengthened by the U.S. support and that clear headed messaging from uh, Blinken, Biden, et cetera, down the line. So I. I actually think, um, you know, call balls and strikes, I think they've done a good job. However, I think that there is um, a fundamental problem with the way that they are viewing what's going on. And I think and, and I think it sort of boils down, Thomas Friedman wrote this article earlier this week or last week about the Biden doctrine, right? And he's unrolling this, or whether it's sort of unrolling or whether it's a trial balloon, I don't know. But he talks about this, this massive peace initiative. And I read through it and I thought, wow, you know, this is very problematic because essentially they are looking at this conflict and when I say they I mean you know Friedman is interpreting what's going on in the White House they're interpreting this conflict as the Arab-Israeli conflict and that might have been true in 48 and 67 and 73 and and maybe up until potentially you could make an argument until the Abraham Accords happened but that is no longer the case today there is there is not an Israeli-Arab conflict in the Middle East anymore there's re re relative peace. Israel's in a major war, and not one Arab state is realistically going to get involved in this. Lebanon might be an exception, but it won't be because the people of Lebanon, it'll be, have to do, it'll be Hezbollah. So what is going on then? And this is essentially an Iranian proxy um, proliferation around the region that is trying to kill and maim and destroy um, US Israel, US allies, US interests, and America. And so I think until you understand this, until you make the shift and understand this is no longer an Arab-Israeli conflict, this is a conflict between Israel and, West, and, and, West, and the West and this Iranian proliferation of, of terrorism. And it has to be tackled through totally different tools. So we talked about regional escalation in Hezbollah. Um, you know, it's a Israel faces a terrible conundrum. Because the U.S. has said, Biden has said that he does not want this to escalate regionally. 
But Israel is in this situation where, as Jonathan said, you have 100,000 people displaced from their homes. And there, it seems to, to people who look at it like me, it almost inevitably, inevitable that that conflict um, is on the table. So, um, I, you know, I think there's a lot of positive moves uh, the U.S. still has to do. I think there's a lot of cards that it hasn't played yet. I hope that there are diplomatic resolutions to some of these some of these bigger problems, but I don't think that we can even begin to tackle them until you see this through the, you sort of let go of that old paradigm of every, every, all the peace will come to the Middle East as soon as you solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And just jumping off from that point, diplomatically, there is something really interesting going around, going on with Saudi Arabia, um, and then also UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, the uh, Abraham Accords countries, and the momentum building towards this broader regional potential deal. And I'm just wondering if you can each talk about the likelihood of, of landing on something that does secure a more stable Middle East where there are pros for the US, um, Saudi Arabia and, and the region and for Israel as well, uh, building off of the Abraham Accords. So I want to continue with where Enya put it. I actually think that uh, what we're seeing on the regional um, momentum is, uh, is actually a manifestation of that shift of mindset of most of the Arab countries understanding that their major source of problems is indeed Iran and not Israel. This has been the case for several years. I've been engaged in in uh, um, in behind the scenes relationship with with those countries for for years in my previous roles as national security advisor, we worked very hard to put the foundation that would lead to regional architectures, defense architectures, intelligence architectures, economic architectures, that would harness this understanding that we actually have shared interests. Those countries in Israel share the interest that Iran is the most problematic enemy at the moment around them, and that fundamental Sunni Islam, radical Islam, political Islam, Islamic Brotherhood manifested by Hamas is the threat from within. We actually share that. I think what's important to understand is that they, when this war started and we engage with them, and it is true that none of those countries have, uh, uh, you know, none of them supported Hamas. Maybe they haven't publicly supported everything that Israel has done, and you know, it's difficult to do that given their streets, they also have generations of incitement in their own countries that Israel is part of the problem and not part of the solution. But this is gradually moving. I think that fundamentally, if I look at it, if I try to, to, to zoom out just a little bit, and to look at it not from how it looks like in, in February of, of, of 24, but what might be the prospect if the leaders can make the right decisions, um, I think the way that Israel has been able to really crush Hamas capabilities in ways that none of those countries have seen before. And the way that the United States is, is involved back actionably in the region, that can provide, I think, a good uh, uh, a possibility to, to put all of those components together and to continue to push both against Iran and against radical Islam. What we need to understand is that they're always spoilers. You know, when I was asked uh, in, in September, uh, before the war started in a, in a different uh, a conference that was dealing just about the Saudi Arabia deal. And I said, I, I don't want to talk about the prospect of the deal, I want to talk about who have the interest to spoil this. There were two, Iran and Hamas. And they continue to be the sole two uh, uh, forces that would fight any uh, normalization 
or um, uh, or chances of, of of improving the lives of of the peoples because they are ideological and they want it to look this way. I'm actually optimistic. I think that we are able to prevail on this. I think that Israel, uh, in a different setting, and I do you know I don't want to make this um, uh, a panel too political, but I think that uh, we do bear. Uh, the consequences of the way that uh, we present ourselves as, as Israel around the world and, and the f when the face of the government of Israel is more radical uh, than I think it should be, then uh, that certainly doesn't help. But I, I don't think this will prevent uh, uh, progress um, uh, in this regard. But to do that, we need to find a good way. Uh, we have to bring the hostages back. We have to continue to crush Hamas. I agree with Jonathan that if we don't solve the Hezbollah problem, uh, and I'm not sure that there is a diplomatic solution to 1701, not because we can't reach a deal. I think that Hezbollah might find the terms to do it. The question is who verifies that and enforces them staying in the north. Otherwise, we will need to, to, to re-engage. But I dare say that even if we find ourselves in a conflict with Hezbollah because they violated such an agreement, I think we'll enjoy legitimacy also in the region. I think that the Gulf countries will understand that if the proxy of Iran decides to violate uh, uh, the terms, uh, um, and Israel needs to fight it. Okay, so we'll fight it. I'm not. I'm not shying away from the need to use force. Israel has never, and I think that post October seven, we definitely shouldn't shy away of using force. But to your question, I think that the prospect of harnessing all of this energy into better collaboration and alignment of interest between us and the Gulf countries and the moderate uh, Sunnis, I'm actually optimistic. It, we may not be able to see this in the coming weeks, but I think we definitely will see this in future months or in coming years. A uh, paradigm shift that the many things I think will be looked at differently and discussed differently after October the 7th. One paradigm shift that is really needed with regards to deal making, peacemaking, progress, stability um, in the Middle East will be uh, understanding, and I think Israel had a significant problem with this and maybe still has, really listening to our enemies and listening to what they want and what they're saying. Um, I think we didn't listen to Hamas. I'm not sure that we are really listening to the PA. And I'm quite confident that many people around the world, in the global, uh, in the capitals of the world, definitely aren't listening to uh, what Palestinians are saying. Um, when we think about, you know, any, if, if, if there is an, um, stubbornness to link between any positive developments in the Middle East and Israel uh, making peace with the Palestinians, I think that's the best recipe for it failing. If it's coupled together and if it's a condition, I think that makes it the biggest, the best way of making it not happen is, is doing exactly that. Uh, and I think we have to listen to what Palestinians are saying, what their polls are indicating, and where their hearts and minds are. Uh, if elections were held two weeks ago in Palestinian Authority areas, Hamas would win by a landslide. If elections were held in Gaza after October the 7th, after half of Gaza was faces severe consequences as a result of the fighting, Hamas has 60-something uh, percent. And uh, when we think about or when things are mentioned, two-state solution and let's and the conflict, and that is the pivot through which regional stability and things that would be, I think, excellent for the U.S., excellent for democracies, bad for Iran, bad for terrorist organizations, if that is the hinge, then 
I think that's too bad because I don't think that uh, the Palestinians currently and in the foreseeable future that their mindset is there. When you vote for Hamas, you're voting for solving that conflict by killing Jews and annihilating Israel. That's the Hamas mindset. I'm sure you've heard this criticism that the um, that the war in Gaza and the arrests in the West Bank and all the increased checkpoints is actually creating more anger and more distrust when there's already no trust between um, just from the Palestinians towards the Israelis. Um, and some have said that it's creating the next generation of people who think like Sinwar. Um, and this is, you know, we hear this a lot in the U.S. How do you respond to that criticism? So, heard it a few hundred times, um, and I don't think that we'll stop hearing it. Um, listen, extremist Islam, uh, fundamental jihadi Islam that thinks that by the way of the sword they can achieve local or regional or global domination isn't going to go away not when Israel defeats Hamas, and uh, it didn't go away when a coalition of, I think it was, 38 countries defeated ISIS militarily. ISIS was defeated, but the ideas of ISIS are still existing and strong, and I'm sure that there are millions of Muslims around the world who adhere to that type of thinking. Uh, same thing with Hamas. They have uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, who believe that the way of jihad and the way of uh, nurturing the next generation of martyrs and constantly fighting Israel, not coming to terms with the fact that Israel is there, Israel is going to exist, and that they lost in 48 and they've continued losing ever since. Without them coming to terms and understanding, then you know they're they're looking at a, a, a whole system of thinking which is very uh, um, very rigid. I don't think that we will be able to get rid of uh, that type of Islam. But what I think that we should be doing is listening more and understanding what realistic possibilities exist in order to create stability, uh, security, and prosperity for those who don't uh, exercise that kind of activity. But we have to be realistic of what can be expected of Gaza. How fast can change be implemented in Gaza? What other historical examples are there in the Middle East of a very failed area, state, and entity transitioning into a successful, functioning, prosperous society? I am not sadly aware of any such example in the Middle East. Many, many times, we, you know, the examples of uh, the Marshall Plan, uh, Japan and Germany after the Second World War are used as, okay, this needs to be a blueprint. I'm not sure that they apply. Um, and in terms of you know, uh, creating the next uh, uh, terrorist by Israel defending itself, uh, I think it's a very shallow uh, thing to ask because how much worse, it's the same thing as saying, okay, Americans and the world shouldn't be fighting ISIS because the mere fighting in Mosul can create the next uh, uh, ISIS terrorist. Okay, so they'll create it and they'll be fought and they'll be defeated. But we can't go and say, oh, we shouldn't act, we shouldn't defend ourselves, we shouldn't stand strong against terrorism just because they won't like it. Yes, they won't like it, and they'll have to be defeated until they understand that their way is not going to bring them not political achievements and not freedom and not prosperity uh, because it's wrong. Should Israel shift its policy um, in the West Bank and 
maybe in Gaza it's a different situation, it's an act of war, but to, you know, the, the arrests, it, it, there's a lot, you know, in the media, we're covering this story a lot, a um, lot of tension in the West Bank, and I'm just curious if you have um, thoughts on Israel's policy there. I think an important thing that is less discussed, it was discussed in Israeli cabinet, but maybe not enough, is how far are we from escalating tensions in what we call Judea and Samaria? Uh, and how far are we from instability? On October the 7th, they rejoiced and felt triumphant that Hamas rubbed Israel's nose and humiliated Israel. Spontaneous shows of joy on the streets, handing out candies and uh, people, a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people were very happy. But then quickly, I think they became cognizant of how dangerous of a situation that is. And they decided to not to respond to Hamas's cries and attempts and demands to launch a third intifada for their own reasons. Uh, maybe enough of them remember how the second intifada ended and what kind of consequences it had. But... I think we, are, we have to be mindful of the fact that the parts of the Palestinian economy are reliant on Palestinians working in Israeli cities and in Israeli settlements. Uh, they haven't been since October 7th, and that's a significant factor in the way that they will you know, calculate what's, what, what do they have to lose. Uh, and maybe uh, Palestinians... You know, Israel should be more careful with that and think of not only the security and the, you know, gut feelings of, no, we don't want to give these people livelihoods, but also on the other options. That's somewhere a, a situation where I think Israel needs to be more uh, careful and cognizant. But in terms of operating, in terms of arresting, in terms of conducting counterterrorism activities, I think that must continue. If it doesn't, the PA will fall and we will see a significant wave of terror activities against Israelis, which will definitely lead to escalation. And I think what's important, just to make an emphasis, because uh, not, not all of the, uh, of the people uh, uh, in the audience understand potentially the, the different uh, uh, realities and, and factions among uh, uh, those areas. The major focus of the IDF right now in Judea and Samaria and, uh, uh, in this regard uh, uh, is to carb Hamas activity and to prevent from them to going stronger to be able to manifest their ideology also there. Unfortunately, from um, uh, my position and also when I was National Security Advisor, the PA isn't strong enough to do that. PA is a construct of, uh, of previous arrangements. Uh, uh, when Israel says, I think, in, in vast consensus that we do not believe that the PA can be a factor in, in reforming Gaza afterwards, this goes uh, fundamentally to the fact that they are corrupt and weak and incapable of, of managing it. Um, uh, we have to say, though, the PA has not pursued violence directly, at least not uh, uh, um, in these years. And that's important to say. The IDF is operating uh, um, um, in the territories in an attempt to get after the Hamas activities and to make sure that we're able to, 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 to get them before this becomes wider. Uh, I totally agree with the with the numbers because I see the pollings. The the civilians, uh, uh, both in in the West Bank, unfortunately, do support violence because, from their perspective, nothing else has helped. But Israel cannot think that if we appease the population, things will get better. We have to pursue this. We have to ensure 
that we are limiting their ability uh, uh, to induce terror uh, uh, on us. And then from that, we can emerge, hopefully, to other solutions. I want to turn to questions, but really quickly, you meant, you brought up, Jonathan, uh, the settlements, and we haven't talked about that. And Inya, I just wanted to um, ask you um, about <clears throat> the Biden administration's stance on the settlements. The settlements do make it difficult for the rest of Israeli society at times to tell their story because um, there's a lot of animosity towards <laughs> people in the U.S. towards um, violence um, in the settlements and, and from settlers, um, you know, having spent time in Israel, there's just a lot of violence there under the surface um, that settlers are dealing with as well. Uh, and, you know, their response um, gets a lot of media attention, and there has been um, quite a bit of violence in the last couple of years, and I'm just curious your take um, on that issue and, and how how to move forward there and, and the U.S.'s uh, position. Sure. So I, I think you're probably alluding to Biden's executive order from last week, where he sort of gave this sweeping executive order on the ability to, to go after um, Israeli settlers that are accused of violence. And I think that um, many would probably disagree with settler with the settler violence and <clears throat> uh, many most in Israel disagree with the, the settler violence the vast majority of Israelis abhor it um, usually when there are instances they are immediately repudiated by the government right this is not a mainstream or um, popular phenomenon in Israel so it's a very it's a very fringe thing I think the timing of the executive order was very um, poorly timed uh, I don't you know also, you know, happened to ha happened the day that Biden happened to be on the campaign trail in Michigan, right? All of that was reported. All of that, I think, was a bad look for the U.S.-Israel relationship. So while I, uh, you know, I do not condone settler violence, I think it is abhorrent. I think I am with most Israelis, the vast, vast majority of Israelis, when I say that. Um, but I also want to point out, and you mentioned violence in the West Bank. I mean, we forget that before October 7th, Israelis were experiencing the worst year of terrorism, the highest deaths since the Second Intifada, since 2005, right? That's all been forgotten now. Obviously now it is by far, you know, nothing pales in comparison to what happened on October 7th, but there were um, a lot of Israelis that were killed by terrorism and most of it emanated from the West Bank, right? So yes, was, you know, were the Israelis blindsided or caught with their pants down in Gaza? Sure. They were, but there, there was a reason why the vast majority of the battalions were in the West Bank, and that was because Israelis were going through one of the worst years of um, terrorist killings um, since the second in a generation. So, uh, so, so yeah, there's a lot. There is violence in the West Bank. I think that the Biden administration's executive order was poorly timed. I think that the important thing um, about settler violence is that the vast majority of Israelis and and um, you know. Sane voices in the Israeli government repudiate it, abhor it, distance themselves from it, and, and I think that's the right thing to do. Okay, I want to open it up to questions. Yes. Oh, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Tom Watkins uh, with The National. A uh, question for um, Mr. Conricus. <coughs> Prime Minister um, Netanyahu today ordered the military to come up with a plan to evacuate civilians from Rafah. Um, Biden administration has said that it would not support such an operation. Um, how would such a 
an evacuation even be feasible and what would the cost be for Israel in terms of international support? Um, and then second question, if I may, uh, you mentioned at the top some of the lessons learned um, in terms of how Israel handled the early days of the conflict and you mentioned UNRWA specifically. Is there anything else that um, you would bring into that kind of uh, look back on how uh, the IDF and um, Netanyahu's government have handled this and what they could or should have done differently? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, if if uh, Israel would have uh, shaped uh, its decisions and actions on the ground according to criticism leveled at it in media studios and in capitals around the world, then Israel wouldn't exist today and probably wouldn't do anything useful to defend itself. Uh, the last example, I remember hundreds of times, uh, being uh, criticized for, or oh, you mustn't and you shouldn't and you can't absolutely ask Palestinians to move no south from northern Gaza. It is tantamount to war crimes. That was the, the slogan catchphrase. And, uh, well, actually you can. And actually it's, it's a good thing to do, to ask civilians not to be in a battle space. And actually they went. Uh, 900,000 of them did go, uh, more than that, uh, after three weeks of Israel prodding and helping it on. Uh, and eventually Israel maneuvered into northern Gaza and uh, defeated Hamas there. And uh, yes, that was said by many, oh, it can't be done. Uh, I, I would apply the same logic to Rafah, and I think that uh, it would have been smarter and better had Israel again taken a leadership position and not waited for uh, very important officials to say things that would be have a negative tone to them, but actually to lead and uh, take the initiative and say, we are going to, in order to defeat Hamas in Rafah and in order to take out the tunnels, we are going to make sure that civilians are out of the battlefield and we're going to we, are we have built a tent city close to uh, the Kerem Shalom border crossing, close to Israel, so we won't need UNRWA support in doing it, and they won't be able to ruin it. And here's the humanitarian solution. Now we're going to defeat Hamas. That probably would have been a smarter strategic thing to do, um, but at least now it's being addressed, uh, and it is possible. Tremendous suffering, and I say this very sincerely, and I share what Eyal you know, feels about what many Palestinians who are not uh, active members of Hamas or part of the Hamas apparatus are going through. They are going through horrible times in Rafah and in Khan Yunis, and uh, I don't envy them. Uh, they have certain responsibility for their choices, but none of the suffering is, is intentional. But at the end of the day, there are things that need to be done in war, and to defeat an enemy is what you need to do. And we cannot, Israel cannot defeat uh, Hamas without taking out the tunnels in Rafah. There's a big campaign going on, a messaging campaign. Egypt is, I think, spending, I don't know, 90% of its diplomatic currency on Israel shouldn't go to Rafah, and it's getting a, quite a lot of traction uh, in uh, foreign capitals, and it's in the media as well. One wonders what is behind that and what the Egyptians are so afraid of in terms of what Israel will find in the tunnels and what will happen if you know, if, it, if, if it's really what is at stake is that Israel will find tunnels and dismantle Hamas in that sense, then why is, Israel, why is Egypt so concerned? If Israel will give guarantees to Egypt that no Palestinians will uh, go into uh, Sinai, which I think is ultimately the only thing that the Egyptians care about, then uh, why, why such a resistance? It's interesting, and I think that we will learn in the coming weeks as events unfold and as layers of soil are peeled away, 
will will see new realities and perhaps have more clarity. Um, regarding the second question, uh, I think that it would have been better if I could have given one recommendation for if, and I hope that we don't find ourselves at war with, uh, with Hezbollah, but if we do, start counting from day one and have an official Israeli intel-based and information-based count that is verified and official and Israel stands behind it on how many combatants Israel knows have been killed and how many non-combatants. Because as of now, Hamas did the obvious strategic move of counting and pushing that count out to the world. And journalists, editors, decision makers, uh, legislators, etc. have taken that number, even though I think many have serious doubts about their veracities, but they take the number because that's the only number out there. So a recommendation would be to start counting because the human perspective and the numbers and non-combatants killed in battle is very important for Israel's legitimacy to continue to carry out what it needs to do. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, Alan Mikovsky from the Center for American Progress. Um, my question's also for Jonathan. It's a follow-up uh, about Egypt. Um, you mentioned tunnels into Egypt. It, that really has not gotten a lot of publicity. I mean, it did many years ago, and supposedly the Egyptians took action. Um, I'm just curious, can, can you uh, give us an estimate? How extensive is the tunnel network into the Sinai? Um, how active is it still? And um, is it possible that Hamas leadership uh, could leave through it or could have already left through it? Thank you. So uh, they're a very open secret. Uh, the tunnels have been active at least 25 years. I remember as a young company commander in 2004, hunting tunnels or searching for tunnels in Rafah. I went into a house based on intelligence. We were told that there was a tunnel entrance or a shaft in a certain house, and we were told to go look for it and expose it. And we found it, the first place we went looking, which was the children's room uh, under one of the beds. And there was a very well-furnished and well-equipped tunnel, and that was in 2004. Since then, Hamas has made tremendous strides in uh, building tunnels and their tunnel technology. Um, and the whole uh, cottage industry of tunneling has really been blooming. Um, it is also, I, from my point of view as an Israeli citizen, I ask my government, where were you 18, 17 years, and why was this allowed to continue? Tunnels have been open. All of the weapons that were used by Hamas to butcher Israeli civilians on October the 7th came into Egypt. And my issue with my government is, how was this able to be open for so long, and most importantly, why? And what is Israel going to do in order to stop that from happening in the future? Uh, and I think that it is, it, it's a tremendous shortcoming in Israeli decision-making to allow those tunnels to be open, to allow Hamas to uh, transfer weapons. Everything that they have came in through those tunnels. All of the Iranian weapons, the Chinese weapons, uh, the Russian variants, everything came in through those tunnels. Uh, they need to be stopped in order for Hamas to be defeated militarily. Uh, it's, a, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tactical challenge to do. Uh, Israel has to go quite deep in a narrow area 
example, there's lots of Palestinian houses that will be used by Hamas as fighting platforms. There's the Egyptian barrier on one side. Um, and it's a, let's say, an engineering and a tactical challenge. Can be done. Israel has the engineering and the military capability to do so. It has to create the diplomatic conditions that are conducive for it without rupturing anything with the U.S. or with Egypt, because Egypt will be very important the day after, which is just around the, the bend. Um, and it'll have to be done smartly, but I don't think that Israel has a choice. And the last part, of course, can be used, may be used, perhaps has been used by Hamas seniors to uh, uh, flee the battlefield. Uh, I don't know, maybe Al knows more updated intel with his sources about where Sinwar is. I don't know. Uh, I don't think that anybody really knows uh, where he is, but that's, I think, a fair working assumption that it has been used and it can be used until they're cut and until they're rendered useless. Thank you, uh, Michael Lippin with the Voice of America. Um, I have a question for Jonathan and Ayal about um, what you were, we were just discussing, the um, Gaza-Egypt border and the tunnels that are going underneath. Um, if, if Israel is going to uh, try to control uh, that border in the long term, uh, even after some engineering work is done to remove tunnels, uh, what, what, what would a long-term... Uh, Israeli presence on that border look like? Would there have to be a giant trench that spans the entire border with Israeli troops just positioned uh, for miles and miles along it? And, and how would such a long-term presence uh, play you know, in the international community? The United States is against such a thing. I think we, we need to, uh, uh, to, to answer that, to look back a little bit. When, when Israel withdrew completely from the Gaza Strip back in 2005 in the disengagement under Sharon, um, the international community demanded, the U.S. demanded, uh, that Israel leave the entire Strip and not even stay in what we call uh, Philadelphia, the, the crossing uh, uh, with Egypt. Um, that has been debated at the time, and it is clearly uh, uh, debated uh, uh, today. To stay in uh, uh, in Gaza on the Philadelphia line, um, I think that uh, uh, if there is no other solution, Israel might be forced to do this. Uh, but hopefully, we can we can find other solutions for that. When the government I served for, we worked tediously with the Egyptians to completely overhaul and reform all of the crossing mechanisms from uh, Rafah. Uh, the Egyptian Rafah into uh, into Egypt and all of the other crossbars. Uh, it is true that, uh, by the way, I'm sure that when we get there, we will find more tunnels than the Egyptians care to to admit. Uh, but truth being told, uh, it was so easy to smuggle things in uh, trucks into Gaza from the Egyptian side that uh, I don't think they needed to pay the fees of uh, transferring all of those uh, pieces of equipment. Uh, through it. And again, this is something that for years uh, we knew, we worked hard with the administration, the American administration, with the Egyptians uh, to completely reform the crossing so that we will have verification of what's going in there. And the question, not only of what's the equipment there, but who is the personnel that is doing this? Who trains them? Who verifies? Who makes sure that things are not smuggled so easily uh, uh, into Gaza? Those are all doable things uh, um, 
as well. And Jonathan rightly uh, explained from a military perspective what can be done uh, uh, from a military standpoint. There are many things that can also be done uh, uh, with complementary agreements uh, between the regions. And in that specific uh, place, I can also imagine how we can do verification in a way that keep Israel relatively uh, confident about what's getting, uh, what's getting in. I'm more uh, uh, cautious and uh, suspicious about what kind of arrangements we, ha we can have in Lebanon, open borders, and, and uh, there is no uh, ally uh, in sight. I don't think that the Egyptians colluded with Hamas to get all of that in. With proper structure, with proper American involvement, international uh, presence, I think we can secure that. And I do want to say that second to crushing Hamas, that's the most important thing we need to blow up Gaza. If we're not able to prevent replenishment of arms, of explosives, of money uh, uh, into Gaza, it's just a matter of time until another radical group will take over. If we don't call it Hamas, then it will be a different name. Uh, and we'll have to secure the southern border uh, of it. I, I don't hear enough about this from the current Israeli government negotiations, but clearly it's something that is, I think, both doable and crucial uh, uh, to do. Jonathan, just adding to that, I think there's an opportunity. I don't think that Israel has an interest in having soldiers there, mostly for diplomatic and political reasons. I think it would be wiser for Israel to find that as a way of having international involvement and buy-in in the situation without being present above ground, but then relying on technology and defensive systems that Israel already has developed and has deployed around other parts of Gaza as a way of making it more difficult, never impossible. And we've seen Gazan ingenuity is very persistent when it comes to tunneling. Uh, but to have uh, systems underground, once the tunnels are cut and dismantled, to have systems underground that are technology-based, hard and soft capabilities, and then above ground, be smart about it and have an international involvement that doesn't say Israel is controlling all of the Gaza Strip. Okay, I think we are running out of time. Do we have a time for one more? Or? Yeah, I think we're at time, but please feel free to ask our panelists um, once we've wrapped up. And thank you all so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you.